This can be a somewhat frustrating chapter for some people because we have kings that go from bad to worse and then from good to bad. But, oh well, uh, those are the chapters before us and we have some things to learn. So it is 2 Chronicles 24 and 25, uh, beginning with Joash, who begins spectacularly well, uh, repairing the temple. So uh, we're in the late 8th century, and uh, the temple is now uh, getting close to 200 years old, and it's seen a lot of activity, and just about anything as it approaches 200 years old is going to need some repair. Um, I just think about my house, which is a 1968 Rambler, um, it, which sounds more like a truck than a house, but that's what it is. Um, <laughs> It is, it is a blue 68 Rambler, actually. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, um, and it needs repairs. Uh, but uh, So the, the temple needed some repairs. And if you remember, Joash, or maybe a couple of you may not have been here, but Joash had become king at age seven because he had the worst grandma ever. Worst grandma ever. She killed everybody who was in line for the throne so she could be the wicked queen. Uh, so he became, he was seven when he became king. He ruled as king in Jerusalem for 40 years and his mother's name was Zibia from Beersheba, a nice lady from a good Jewish town. Beersheba is the southern end of, of Israel. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. So not all the days of his life, but all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And last time we saw that Jehoiada was the high priest at the time when Joash was rescued. He's the one, actually his wife was the one who rescued Joash. Took them, he, they took the boy into their own house and raised him. And incidentally, they were in their 90s when that happened. Uh, so Jehoiada was, was not like, you know, 26 when they adopted this baby. They were, you know, um, uh, older than my dad is now. So uh, uh, that's a challenge for folks to do it, but they did it. And uh, just very briefly, this is the uh, line here in the ninth century. Joash uh, becoming king at age seven and in the year 835. And just to show you, Jehoiada was born, I believe, sometime around the year 927. At the end of our chapter, he's going to be 130 years old. Um, and uh, 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 Joash dies perhaps the year after Jehoiada. Um, so it might have been more than that, but it's around, it's not very much time at all. So as long as old Jehoiada is still around, Joash does okay. But Joash was the king of Judah is not really a leader, he's a follower. So as long as Jehoiada's around, he raised me, he's my mentor, he's like grandpa to me, but then Jehoiada dies and Joash is gonna follow somebody else and he's not gonna follow the right kind of person. So that's, that's the downfall of, of, jo, of Joash. So Jehoiada obtained two wives for him and he fathered sons and daughters. And oi, how, what, can somebody tell me why they think the kings of Judah and Israel thought it was okay to break the sixth commandment this way and marry as many wives as they wanted to when they were king? 
We had a good guest this morning. Um, I, I'm forgetting who it was, but uh, someone just offered, I think it was just the culture they lived in. And I think that's a pretty good answer um, because we get affected by our culture. We get desensitized to sins because everybody does that. And after a while, you get a little bit desensitized to whatever that is. Yeah, it, um, in fact, uh, after the Babylonian exile, you hear nothing about it as far as I know at all in Scripture. So it's going on until the exile. However, that's also the end of the kings. So as soon as they lack, they, they don't have king anymore, and nobody has the incentive to take on extra wives. So that's, that's kind of it. Esther seems to be one of the last of the multiple wives in the, for, for a different king, but that's kind of it. Um, in the New Testament, I can't think of anybody who has multiple wives, unless one of the kings did that I you know, don't know anything about or something like that. Oh, and of course, well, Herod, who doesn't quite get a divorce before he marries his brother's sister or wife. And anyway, ugh, that's just, yeah, ugh. But, um, but, you know, just because a sin is commonplace in a, a time or a culture doesn't mean that it's any less of a sin to God. It just means that it's an easier sin to fall into. And so just because my neighbors don't think it's surprising that I fall into a sin doesn't mean that God doesn't condemn that sin. Okay. So after this, it was on Joash's heart to restore the house of the Lord. So he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and collect money from all Israel for the repairs to the house of your God. Do this annually. Get started immediately. Can you just help me remember that the word annually is in verse 5? Because later I'm going to say, what verse was that? And it's verse 5. The Levites, however, did not act on it quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the head of the project, also the man who raised him and saved his life, and said to him, why have you not required the Levites to collect from Judah and Jerusalem the tax which Moses, the servant of the Lord, established with the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? So our young king scolds his mentor slash step-grandpa. Um, and why did this happen? Because Athaliah was wicked. Her sons had broken into the house of God and used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. What are the dedicated things? Lampstands, tables. I think also the stuff around the altar, the shovels and the tongs and the pokers and the little brooms. What's all the apparatus that's at the edge of the fireplace? You know, you know all the stuff that hangs on the little iron rack. And they had to have all that for the, for the altar. Because uh, as I often forget at my house... You don't pick the pan out of the oven with your bare fingers. But I, 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 there's a, I have testimonies that say that I try all the time. Um, uh, but they used it for the bales. And the king gave a command that a chest was to be made and set outside the gate of the house of the Lord. A proclamation was issued in Judah and Jerusalem that the tax imposed upon Israel in the wilderness by Moses, the servant of God, should, belong, should be brought to the Lord. And all the officials and all the people rejoiced. They brought the money and dropped it into the chest until it was full. 
Um, in our time, it's easy to pick a lock. In fact, there's a YouTube video series by a guy who calls himself the lock-picking lawyer. And he likes to take the claims on all the padlocks you can buy and, and discount them by breaking into that lock. You know, he's the one who will teach you that the master lock, remember the old one that you used on your high school gym locker or whatever? Easiest lock in the world to break. But, uh, but he's, he's the guy who will say, oh, I can break that with a banana peel or whatever, and he'll do it, you know, whatever it might happen to be. However, in their culture, not everybody owned a, a bolt cutter, you know, or something like that. So a chain was a pretty good security system for a chest of money, right? You know, wrap a chain around it, fix the chain to the wall or whatever, and uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty good security. That's what they did, and they uh, filled it up. Also, kind of an innovation at this time in, 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 in world history is we're no longer bringing uh, statues and jewelry when we have to uh, pay a tax. Their shekel is now a piece of money. So uh, uh, coins as money is beginning to be more and more of a thing and everybody kind of has coins. But they don't always have the right coin when they come to the temple. And so what happens, for example, when Jesus comes to the temple before Passover? He flips over the tables because that's where the money changers were because they had to have the right currency to pay the temple tax. But the question is, which tax is this? So out in the wilderness, there were a couple of different taxes. Moses imposed a tax to plunder the Egyptians, or rather God did. Ask the Egyptians for money and they'll give you all kinds of money, and they did. Aaron imposed a tax to build the golden calf. We gathered all this gold, threw it into the fire, and Moses actually says, and out came this calf. Ta-da! You know, just about the, one of the dorkiest things said in the whole Bible. And however, they also built the tabernacle with a tax and they redeemed the firstborn with a tax. All the soldiers, or all the firstborn sons rather, had to pay a tax in order to be redeemed so they wouldn't have to uh, uh, become priests uh, because the Levites were now the priests. And the reason why I bring up all of these is because I think that it's number three that they're paying back in, uh, they, 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 this was supposed to be, remember in verse 5, an annual tax? Well, that wasn't what that tabernacle tax was, but it kind of is the firstborn tax. It was actually a military census tax. So if you were in the army or you were of a military age, that is 20 to 50, I think, you had to pay... Um, a tax to be counted even. So can you imagine that? Not only do I get drafted, but I have to pay for it? Well, that's, that was their system. No, but they weighed half shekels. That was, that was originally a, a, a weight. Like the British, what's the British dollar called? A pound. Yeah, so that, that's, that's a weight thing. Mm -hmm. Excellent question. So I actually think that here we have a combination of numbers three and four. It was a reference to building the tabernacle, but it was really the annual tax of either the firstborn or the military thing that they were using. And that we get down to Jesus' day, 
where they were coming in. They had to come in every year at the beginning of the year, which incidentally is two weeks before Passover. So if they were a little bit late, you know, like when you pay your bills and it's due on the 16th and you don't put the stamp on until like midnight of the 17th and you say, I really hope it's okay. And, you know, and that kind of thing. Anybody else paid bills like that? Okay, well, enough confessions from me. Um, from time to time, the chest was delivered from the custody of the Levites to the king's administrators. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of silver in it, the secretary of the king and the administrator of the head priest came and emptied the chest. Two different guys in charge of the money. Is that wise? Oh, yeah, that's wise. Um, did you know that in our congregation, or let me ask it a different way. In our congregation, according to the church constitution, how many offices on the church council can one man hold? What would you think? One? Yeah. No, that's not how it works. Actually, it's as many as he needs to, except he cannot be both the treasurer and the guy who writes the checks. That's the only stipulation. Um, I was... At, this, is, this is the highest position in church government I've ever had in my life. But I was for 12 years the chairman of the Constitution Committee of the Minnesota District. So Minnesota, Iowa, and, um, and uh, Missouri. I was the chairman of the, of the three-man Constitution Committee. We reviewed all of the church constitutions. It's not the most exciting job. Um, but we did this, and we answered questions and approved their changes. And uh, 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 what most congregations, especially little ones, don't understand, because they always wanted to do an end run around the, uh, around the Constitution or the roles of men and women by saying, Pastor, we just don't have enough men to fill up all of our roles. And I said, For first of all, you have 104 people in your congregation. You don't need 12 officers on your church council. Um, and also, you don't have to have 12 men. You can have four men. Or two. You know, I mean, the chairman can certainly also be the chairman of the board of elders and the congregation president and be on the evangelism committee. There's nothing that says he can't do all those things. In fact, we, I made it our, our policy in those years. It was the same as when President Degner was our, our, synod, our, our district president. He's the one who made me that person. Um, and... Uh, uh, we made it our policy to add um, uh, paragraphs to church constitutions that, that explaining that to people. However, I happen to know that the, the guy who became chairman after me didn't like all that, he called it extra prose. So it's, I think it's all been struck now from all those constitutions, but oh well. Um, but it, did, it, it helped to explain things for people. Yeah, that's, that's our policy. Two ushers have to handle the money as it goes down. And here, notice that they're from different... Thanks for getting us back to the text, Laura. Well, that was deftly done. That was very nicely done. Uh, notice that they're from two different parts of the local government. One is the king's secretary. So, uh, um, what am I trying to say? Secular. And one is the administrator of the head priest. So, one's religious. So you've got two different branches of government working together to do this and then go down and empty the chest and they'll return it. And they did this regularly and collected a large amount of silver. Okay. 
The king and Jehoiada gave the silver to those carrying out the work of the house of the Lord. They hired stonemasons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord and also craftsmen who worked with iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. I'm not sure that they followed the original regulation. There was one overriding rule in Solomon's day for when they built the temple. I don't know if anybody can think of what it might happen to have been, but it was a very special rule that I, 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 I just doubt that they did it too. You're both right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. That they would, that they would, it would be done with no noise up on the Temple Mount, um, and and so the the um, to get two big stones to fit together, what did they today? When we get two bricks to fit together, we put goop in the middle, right? Uh, but that has to that 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 uh, that goop has to be redone every couple of years. In fact, I think that might be the next big project here at church. Is it's called tuck pointing, where you have to redo the mortar in between the bricks. Yeah, they yeah right. I yeah, um, they didn't do that because um, our gap in between bricks is like I don't know quarter half inch, something like that. Theirs was less than the width of a the, less than the thickness of a, of a of a piece of paper. So they just fitted their stones together perfectly. But they did use mortises um, in, the, in their stones. They would have a piece sticking down in one stone and a corresponding groove in the stone below it. So it was a little bit more like um, Legos, you know, the way that it would fit. And it was a perfect fit. Of course, if I were to be walking around the temple at night and I stepped on one of these stones, it would be smooth and cool. But in the night, in my house, in my bare feet, if I step on a Lego... That's a different world of pain. Yes, they do. Yeah, it is seismically active, especially though uh, closer to the rim of the Dead Sea. So, I mean, I know you're only talking about maybe 40 miles from Jerusalem, but not exactly two miles from Jerusalem. It it, it would. However, later we're going to find out that uh, the the. The guy who becomes king at the end of the next chapter, which is in the next half hour, is Uzziah. And there was an earthquake in the time of King Uzziah that was evidently so massive that 200 years later, they were still talking about it. It was a serious, wrecking earthquake, a terrible earthquake. Laborers carrying out the project worked hard. And the work of the restoration moved forward because of the diligent work of their hands. They restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. So we go from ruined things to fixed things. And uh, not quite that easily, obviously. Um, But they did restore the temple. And when they finished, they brought the rest of the silver to the king and to Jehoiada. They used it to make items for the house of the Lord, utensils for use in the service and for the burnt offerings, such as small dishes and gold and silver vessels. Why would you need little dishes and things? There are a couple reasons. I think in sprinkling bowl, washing things, they had actually um, uh, uh, bigger movable pans for that kind of thing. But but maybe uh, a little bit possibly, but I'm thinking some, some of it is stuff like salt. They would measure out a certain amount for certain offerings. And then there are also things like if I'm going to cut out the fat of this sheep and put it up on the thing, I'm not just going to carry it in my hands up the steps. 
you know, I'm probably going to put it into a, into a dish to, to walk from A to B. And many, many other uses for dishes um, when, you're, when you're doing sacrifices. There are all kinds. You also have to catch, finally, the blood of the lamb in something to pour it out on the horns of the altar. I mean, an ox would be a couple of five-gallon pails. But a lamb would be more like uh, um, something about the size of a crock pot or an ice cream pail. So they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually throughout all the days of Jehoiada. Not all the days of King Joash, but all the days of Jehoiada, the good high priest. Also, um, there are two more things about this section. Because... um, it tells you that they weren't offering burnt offerings for a long time before this. Things had gone downhill and there were times where Israel just wasn't doing the offerings. I know that in the sermon I said a million lambs. No, I did not. And, and in fact, I, I kind of want... Did it really? Okay. However... You get, you get dedication services like the one that Solomon did and maybe it makes up for the lost time. So it might have evened out after a while. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I had a prick of, of, uh, of, of that because in one or two of the services, I remembered to say, assuming they did all of the regular offerings. But I may have forgotten in yours, so I'm sorry about that. And then on top of that, I have, I'm beginning to get a sense of... of uh, I, I think you call it being gun shy of, of the text of Chronicles. Because it seems like every time they bring up all the little dishes for for the for the for the temple, then they're about to tell us that somebody else stole them all again in, in a little while. So every time they get brought up, oh, they redid all the dishes, and then oh, and they lost all the dishes. It's just a recurring theme in Chronicles about all this stuff that they had that they kept having to replace all the time. Um, I knew a woman once who uh, kept stealing the valuables out of her own home to sell at garage sales over and over again. It was like a pattern in her life. Um, She was addicted to drugs and she was the stepmother and so she would take whatever valuables she would find and sell them. And, and, and to, to make money, but she, she, was, she gutted the, the home that she had married into, you know, constantly. So all the children's clothes and toys and the valuables, like the good silver and stuff, it all just vanished because she, you know, just selling it all for, for money. Um, but that's kind of what Israel kind of did as they were um, gutting their own, their own wealth to pay for their own sinfulness, you know, ultimately. Okay, well, spoiler alert, uh, the good king who just rebuilt the temple, well, Jehoiada, remember that's old grandpa, kind of grandpa, the the mentor guy? Well, he grew old and full of days and he died. He was 130 years old at his death. Now, I I, kind of wondered, is he the last of the really long-lived guys in the Bible? I'm trying to think, is there anybody after him? Because after him, now we're in the time of the prophets after this, and the, the more well-known kings, hardly any of the kings lived beyond age 50. And uh, the prophets, some of the prophets lived a long time, but not that long. 
and um, who else do you have? Ezra, Nehemiah, even um, old uh, um, um, Anna in the temple is in her 80s, right? So not like this, though. So this is at least one of the last of the really long-lived individuals um, um, in the Bible. When I was a young man, um, about Jameis's age, I was told by a professional psychologist who had studies to back up his theory that um, he, he'd showed, he had, uh, through a, a study that was done in the, throughout the 19th century and the 20th century, of people were asked at a young age, how long do you think you'll live? And more than 50% of the time, they were right. Like whatever age they guessed at as a young person is the age they died at. I mean, within a, like a year or two. So somebody would say, I think I'll live to be 90. And they would die at like 90, you know, or 91 or something. So, so how, old, how old are you right now, Jameis? When I was 12, I was actually 13, I began to tell myself and everybody I knew, I'm going to live to be 137. Which means I'm not even halfway done yet. You know, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see. Well, anybody can be, well, oh, I don't know, no, no, Jehoiada. <laughs> not, not, I didn't mean it that way. Okay. So anyway, we'll see. I, I'm not sure I feel that way any longer, so we'll kind of see, but uh, we'll, we'll. Extra credit if you know what movie this uh, scene is from. Anyway, they buried him in the city of David with the kings because he had done good things for Israel in connection with God and his house. It is the Lord of the Rings. Very good. This is the tomb of the kings in Gondor, not the actual burial place in Israel. I'm sorry. We don't know what the uh, house of the kings in Israel looked like. I'll bet it wasn't quite this nice. But um, anyway, the, 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 the curious thing here is that um, the priest is buried with the kings. The king will not be. That's part of the contrast in this chapter we're looking for. So Jehoiada will get to be buried with the kings, but not Joash. And we're, I, I think, about a year from Joash's death here. So the, things are not going to go well for this young man. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king. Then the king began to listen to them. So I said, he's a follower, not a leader. This is the court of Louis the Sixteenth, I think. But uh, anyway, um, they're not really a friendly-looking group, are they? They now. This is the, notice, notice the word "they" here. So they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherahs and the idols. Joash, you just spent all this money. I mean, they collected all the money, they built up the temple, and now he abandons the house, the temple of God and serves the Asherahs and the idols. And wrath fell upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their guilt. And do you think it took a long time for the wrath to build up? Not long. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.